You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of us during the pandemic have been really excited about the prospect of traveling of going somewhere new, maybe a foreign country, doing a bunch of things, meeting interesting people. Well, Joe Biden got to live the dream this week, doing a little Euro trip where he met all sorts of prominent leaders in the G7 and one Vladimir Putin. So that was a very interesting spectacle. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about what Joe Biden's trip to Europe tells us about American foreign policy, specifically towards Europe and Russia in the Biden administration, and more broadly, how Europe and Eurasia is handling the after effects of the Trump presidency in, in all of its various different forms. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Oh, yeah. Biden was enjoying a Euro trip. <laughs> I really, uh, honestly, when we were talking about this episode, I wanted to make it all about the teen sex comedy Euro trip that I really enjoyed when I was like 18 years old. And it's very good. That's like, that's like a decade and a half ago. Um, almost literally. Oh my God. I'm so old. So first of all, what you need to know from this movie really is just the song. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know the Fiona oh, and me. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to keep going, but it's actually a great song. That song annoyed the hell out of me throughout high school because I hated the people who liked that movie. Uh, so what's wrong yeah, with you? Very wrong it's so take. Enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bad person. I don't. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I, look, I'm sure. I'm sure it doesn't hold up now. Thank you, Sophie. Of- our producer just told us that the movie came out 17 years ago because she wants to make us all feel incredible. Which makes sense because Matt old. Damon showed up in that movie and he was a very young Matt Damon. Oh my God. He was he was filming. I think I think it was one of the Bourne movies or something. And so they just the Eurotrip people just asked him like, "Do you want to do this cameo in our movie as a like punk band singer?" Who he was great. Okay, I'm not going to say. Yeah, I'm not going to finish the sentence. That's you should not doing in the movie. Yeah, I will not. Um, because first of all, if you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to spoil it for you. It really is a classic. We're Again, only discusses maybe, fine cinema. <laughs> yeah, probably doesn't hold up very much, but I remember loving it when I when I watched it in my childhood bedroom. It was great. Um, 
So Joe Biden's Euro trip is not like the one in the movie. For those of you who have seen it, it turned out to mostly be instead of like traveling around with soccer hooligans who really like the Goldfinger cover of 99 Red Balloons, a thing that happens in the movie Euro trip. Okay, it's a really good he, cover though. I'm just saying. It's anyway, a great cover. Moving on. It's actually probably better than the original. It's absolutely um, better than the original. Go yeah, on. I, I really agree. Uh, <laughs> it, Joe Biden started off uh, in the UK in Cornwall for a meeting of the G7. And then he went to Brussels, which I think is an underrated city, and got to uh, have some NATO meetings, NATO EU meetings. And then he finished up with a trip to Switzerland to sit down with the Democratic Party's most hated foreign leader, Vladimir Putin, especially now that Benjamin Netanyahu is out of office. So, Alex, of, of these trips... Why don't you start talking about the leg that you thought was most interesting and most important? Well, I'm, that means I'm not going to talk about the Putin one. Um, oh, okay. Wait, I, I want to stop you right there before we started because, Jen, I believe you thought the Putin one was the most important one. I'm just laughing at the leg you thought was most important. I think Putin's legs are most important. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Talk about Putin's legs. We are weird this morning, worldly listeners. We are incredibly weird this morning. It's 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 been a week. So for my money, I don't have any money. Uh the Putin meeting was, you know, the most interesting, the most watched. Alex obviously disagrees and thinks that it's overrated. But for me, here's here's my case. So people may remember that Russian President Vladimir Putin and his security services interfered in some elections here in the U.S. and some European countries. Caused a bit of a, a brouhaha. Uh, you may remember the Mueller investigation, etc. Vladimir Putin uh, has done a lot of really wild uh, stuff on the international scene in the past decade or so. He seized Crimea, launched a military invasion of part of Ukraine. He's cracked down internally on his own democracy. He has essentially pushed through constitutional changes to make himself president for life if he wants to be. He has interfered not just in U.S. elections, but in plenty of elections in other countries in Europe, there was a major hack of U.S. federal agencies, the Solar Winds hack. Russia is believed to be behind that. There have been lots of ransomware attacks. We don't know for sure, or I don't think to any degree of certainty yet, how much or if at all the Russian government was involved in that. But they have at least been tied to cyber criminals operating from Russia. So yeah, uh, Russia is kind of a big deal right now. Whether or not you think it's a it's a great power and, and all of that, and whether it deserves to have the kind of huge economic, political, military presence in the you know American geopolitical consciousness that it does, I think you know for the United States and Russia, there are some really big issues that need to be addressed, especially in the wake of the Trump administration, when we had you know Putin and Russia played a huge prominent role in the discourse and in, you know, the consciousness. So I think for me, the, the Biden meeting with Putin was really important for all of those reasons, to have the new U.S. president go sit down one-on-one face-to-face with Vladimir Putin, you know, look him in the eye and say, Here, here's what I think, here's where I stand, here's what you can no longer do to our country, and if you cross these lines, we are going to respond. I understand that that may not change anything, et cetera. I still think very firmly it is worth doing it is worth standing up and saying, you can't do this stuff anymore in a way that we didn't see very clearly with President Trump, who we made a big deal several years ago of Trump standing next to Putin at that press conference when they met and taking Putin's side and saying, you know, well, he says he didn't interfere in the election. I don't see why it would be him. He later changed 
Vincent that he misspoke, and I don't see why it wouldn't be him. I don't buy that. But again, that was a big deal because it was the U.S. president standing next to Vladimir Putin and saying, "Uh, I buy his story. And I think, you know, by that same kind of metric, having the U.S. president sit down face to face with Putin and go, listen, knock it off. I think that's important. Uh, Here's why Jen and most people in the media are wrong. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Worldly debate. I love to see it. Go on. Bring it. So it'll be a bit of a wind up, but, but let me get there. What Putin wants almost more than anything in the world is for for him to be seen like he is a world leader on par with the American president. And I'm not one of those guys who feels like if you give a summit to you know the person who wants that, you've somehow given up some major thing. That's not what I'm going to argue. But what I'm arguing is actually giving him this summit leads to the kind of bad behavior that we're trying to stop. So, for example, Putin amassed tens of thousands of troops outside of Ukraine back in back in April, and it had everyone worried about you know, is Russia going to do some sort of greater invasion of Ukraine? It never happened, perhaps in part because Biden called up Putin and said, and like, was like, hey, you need to knock this off. And also, do you want to have a summit at some time this summer in some third country? And Putin said, yeah. And then a few days later, Putin withdrew the troops and brought him back towards Russia or at least away from the Ukrainian border. Okay. Experts will say that it's still unclear whether or not that phone call and that proposal played a role. But what they will say is that like Putin makes these kinds of provocative, bold actions just to get this kind of summit or to get some sort of quote-unquote concession from the United States. So if you do give Putin like the summit, we now he now knows, okay, I have to basically destabilize Eastern Europe in order to get this kind of meeting. And maybe he won't actually do the bad thing, but like it's really bad behavior to amass tens of thousands of troops outside of another country that you've kind of already invaded. So that's sort of issue one. Issue two, nothing really happened in this summit, like at all. <laughs> yeah, Biden said, hey, you can't cyber attack these 16 sectors, which is important. Yeah, you know, we will we will talk about having discussions about cybersecurity. And yes, we will begin a dialogue on strategic stability, aka nuclear stuff and arms control, which is important. I'm not knocking that. But like, did we really need to go to a, have a face-to-face meeting to do that? Couldn't this have been done on a phone call? Like, I, we, Biden and, and, and Putin have already had two phone calls in which Biden basically said all the stuff he's already said. Maybe it is more personal to have the the face-to-face meeting, but it's not clear to me that a summit is somehow going to lead to better Putin behavior. And in fact, the evidence would already seem to show somewhat the opposite because Putin had a one-hour press conference after the summit, and he did all his normal Putin hits. Anytime someone asked him like about Navalny, he wouldn't say his name and and you know wouldn't back off from keeping him in jail. He has yet to commit to keeping Navalny alive. Um, who was, of course, the, the prominent Russian dissident, you know, said nothing about Belarus, said nothing to say that we will stop cyber attacking the United States or interfere in elections. Like nothing came out of this, really. And even Biden himself was like, look, perhaps kind of maybe we'll see if this works three to six months down the line. But why is this a problem? Well, because I guess issue three is imagine Putin defies these red lines that Biden set in the meeting. He allows Navalny to die in prison. There's another hack of the United States government or the private sector. Well, now, here's here's what happens. Biden looks super embarrassed because he would have been lied to by Putin to his face. He'll have to respond quite forcefully with sanctions or, you know, expelling diplomats or something else. And then the goal of a stable and predictable relationship with Russia is no longer going to be that way because it's only going to plunge relations downward. So I don't really see any upside to this, especially when you think of like the substance that came out of it, which is not that much compared to 
the other stuff that happened in the trip, the EU and NATO, where they committed to sending billions of vaccines around the world, where they revamped ties, where they agreed to some defense spending and military operations and and were discussing like how are they actually going to get out of Afghanistan together. Like that tangibly off the top of my head is already far more important than the Russia stuff. I'm not saying that Biden shouldn't talk to Putin. I think that's what phones are for. That's what Zoom is for. I don't think the, the drama and the pageantry and the hype of a summit is actually going to work out because if it backfires on Biden, which a lot of experts think it could in the ways I just described, like this will actually end up being more of a failure than a success. So didn't they also agree to returning ambassadors? Yes, but that is the lowest hanging fruit. They could have done that on the phone and, they, and the U.S. and Russia have done that in the past on the phone too. Like you didn't need a summit to say, send the ambassadors back. Maybe, maybe not. It is the case that, and I'll let Jen respond to Alex's critique in a minute, but I wanted to say that it is the case that U.S. and Russian relations have hit a particularly low point, uh, not necessarily the lowest in recent memory. But during the Trump administration, Russia became, as I alluded to in the introduction, the most hated country by the Democratic Party anywhere in the world, and Putin specifically. Right, the, the common slur now among Democrats, if there's somebody taking a position that you don't like on foreign policy or even on domestic policy for that matter, is that you're doing Putin's bidding. Right. And it's because of the election interference on Trump's behalf, and it's because of the Russia collusion scandal that it has become not just diplomatically more difficult for the US and Russia to try to develop a go-along to get along type relationship, not necessarily close buddies, but at least something that can prevent, you know, really destabilizing behavior by Russia. But you know, it, it's politically difficult now for Democrats to handle this properly. And, you know, the, there are a few barriers, right? It's not just the internal Democratic turn against Russia, which was not the case in the Obama administration. It's also on the Republican side, you're seeing a resurgence of Russia hawkery. A lot of Republicans who had authentically conservative foreign policy positions and hawkish ones were kind of silenced by the way that Trump spoke and talked to Russia. And now they're free to attack Biden for being weak on Russia in a way, without having to deal with with Trump contradicting them by tweeting how much he loves Putin. And so the result is that there were a lot of reasons to expect that U.S.-Russia relations would get worse. And no one this time around was expecting a quote-unquote reset, like you saw at the beginning of the Obama administration, where things were going to get better. So it seems to me that having a face-to-face sit-down actually might have helped accomplish at least some, if not like you know, full normalization, not in the technical legal sense, but in the sense of like returning to a kind of more normal baseline of the way that U.S. and Russia interact with each other, that a summit might have helped with that, something that got these two people talking and also maybe helped uh, get those ambassadors back in place and improve the lines of communication between the two sides in a variety of different ways, allowing for more robust conversation given the unique constraints of the particular political moment. Yeah. So just to, I think that's right. And just to kind of uh, rebut literally everything Alex said, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Alex, I think you make good points um, for once. Um, (laughs) For once. (laughs) Just kidding. I kid, mostly. Burn. Um, (laughs) So a few things. First, you know, if Biden were to have that phone call or that Zoom meeting, I'm not sure how secure Zoom is and if both governments would agree to that, but some version they would have put out a, a call readout. All of the major news media outlets around the world would have covered it. It would have still said, Biden puts down red lines to Vladimir Putin. And if Putin turned around and violated those, even though it was a phone call, Biden would have still had to 
respond fairly forcefully. Uh, you know, one of the things that he said at the summit was basically echoing what he had already said in numerous statements about Alexei Navalny, and et cetera. Um, the second thing, I do think actual things came out of it. You know, it's not just that Biden said, hey, you know, don't attack these items of critical infrastructure. They actually agreed to put together mutual working groups to come back together, you know, in a few months and discuss, like, what do we think are the actual you know, real red lines. What are the ground rules? Can we come to some way to establish cybersecurity ground rules in a way that like we did in in the Cold War? Like what weapons are you allowed to field, you know, nuclear weapons and strategic deployments, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's do that for cybersecurity. What are our absolute off limits in terms of our, you know, nuclear infrastructure, our electric grid, water, IT, et cetera. And Biden looked at Putin and said, how would you feel if the United States attacked your oil and gas pipelines? And a lot of people saw that as, you know, him playing the kind of empathy card that Biden is good at, like, put yourself in my shoes. But it could also be read as a threat. Hey, how would you feel if we did that to you? Yeah, exactly. So let's not do this. So I think that is actually a substantive thing. And more generally, I've made this case a lot in international affairs, diplomacy and pageantry matter. I think having this very visible, literal, you know, Biden standing up for democracy, for human rights, et cetera, in the face of Vladimir Putin. And and not just that, it's not like he just came straight from the U.S. He came from a meeting with the G7 and then a meeting with NATO and then goes to Putin after having, you know, basically having the backing of, of all of those countries and alliances and saying, now I'm going to go, you know, stand up with Vladimir Putin with all these people at my back. So I think it was very powerful. Do I think it's going to change everything? Of course not. But I do think that, again, I think it matters to stand up on the world stage and go, look, don't do this anymore. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like everyone's just so bought into this. Like, what do we say about every summit, basically? You need to come out with pretty concrete deliverables that, like, you can actually show progress on. And what we got out of this was agreements for talking about talks, and then, like, Biden going, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Like, it's not that off from when Trump went with Kim Jong-un. It was like, I just want to talk to the guy. Like, tell him where we're standing from and, like, see where we're at. And, like, yeah, we'll do this top-down thing. And then uh, we'll see what happens. Like, that's basically what this was. That's effectively what this was. And if you wanted to send a message to Putin, how about instead of meeting him and giving him a pseudo-reward for his aggressions in Eastern Europe and, like, all the other stuff he's done, and how about holding a meeting with the Ukrainian president instead in Kiev or something like that? That'd be quite a message. Like, you didn't have to meet with Putin at all. And in fact, some people thought this was kind of an own goal in the sense that Biden offered this meeting. He's the one who requested it. Putin gets the meeting he wanted, gets the reward for his behavior. And then they sort of have to tack this on to the end of the Europe trip, which then, instead of being a meeting with European allies about, like, how we revitalize the alliance and work on climate change and confront China, which is, like, the main thing Biden wants to do, and instead it becomes about Russia all of a sudden. China still featured pretty prominently in the meeting and, and all the other issues, but, like, Russia is now part of this agenda again. And this is precisely the thing that Biden probably didn't want to do. <laughs> Because he wants to move on. Like, he's trying to tend the garden worldwide, right? He wants to basically keep all other things on the back burner so he can focus on issues at home, climate change, and China. So part of, I think, the reasoning that he wanted the summit and to talk with Putin is to be like, hey, can, if we can chill for a minute here, we can solve some <laughs> stuff in the background, and, like, we don't have to make this a big thing. But, like, the summit makes it a big thing. <laughs> and he gave himself no flexibility whatsoever. Like, imagine now, as I said, like, Putin does something bad, Right. 
Now he has nowhere to go. Like he can't offer sort of a calm down summit. Like now you just have to be sort of in fight mode. Whereas if you offer these warnings over the phone or whatever, I agree with you, Jen, like there will still be media reports saying, oh, Biden, um, you know, defied by Putin or whatever. But like he at least has another card to play. Wait, okay, but if you're saying that a calm down summit is a good thing to do after tensions are raised, then what if this is the calm down summit after tensions no, are but raised? No, but I'm, I'm yeah, not... That, 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 was, that was directly contradictory. No, 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 no. But hold on. I'm not saying that he actually gives the summit. Like, the summit itself is sort of the thing you dangle at, at Putin. Like, you keep saying, like, if you want to meet, you got to calm down. <laughs> like, now, he got the meeting. He has no incentive to calm down because there's not going to be another meeting. Like, you dangle that carrot the whole time. All I'm trying to say is, like, I'll put that aside. The other thing is like when we're talking about what was the most important part of this Euro trip, look at the substance of the Putin stuff and look at the substance of the G7 and NATO and the EU stuff. And it's not even close. Like what matters more at the end of the day? Like this, this was just like a dramatic high profile thing because it was Putin. And because three years ago, Trump made an absolute mess of their summit in Helsinki. Well, we're not probably not going to solve this disputant. Um, so well, I'm, I'm, I was just about to finish. Hold on. Like I, it was a <laughs> I know I it know. was a Putin pun I know it's okay <laughs> wah, 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 wah. look look I think you're I think you're both kind of right um, I think I, we are too I I I, 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 agree I agree I'm more right yeah <laughs> I I was gonna be nice to you for a second there but now I don't want to because fine. you're being a little a little arrogant guy over here no I'm one on two cool. here I got to do what I can. <laughs> All right, all right. I was saying I agreed with both Fine, of you. Fine, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I think you're right, Alex. Zach that, the peacemaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, for once. Look, I think you're right, Alex, that uh, the meeting does not have like clear deliverables. And in that sense, overhyping the pageantry and the symbolism of it in the press, which happened like to a wild degree in the American media, especially, right? There was a lot of stuff about how Biden, like, one-upped Putin with, you know, some kind of symbolic gesture or giving him aviators or something like that, which is the, one of the formal gifts he gave him because aviators are obviously not only Joe Biden's favorite sunglasses, but sunglasses that they're associated with the U.S. Air Force, hence people who could bomb Putin in the future, right? And people are like, oh, what an own. I don't know. Who cares, right, to, to I do. that I sort of funny. thing. Yeah, actually, I, I know you thought, thought that was kind of great. But in terms of practical politics, it's meaningless. Uh, and it doesn't, like... Just attempts to like display macho dominance, even through subtle signals, I find annoying and kind of pointless as a diplomatic mechanism. So I really think the symbolism of this was not nearly as important as a lot of people are making it out to be. On the other hand, I think the point about trying to de-emphasize Russia policy cuts both ways, right? Putin needs to be dealt with. You can't just like ignore Russia. Right? Because then Russia will do things that will make you not ignore them, will force you not to ignore them. You have to come to some kind of arrangement with the Russian government that limits their destabilizing activities to a degree if you want to focus on other things and not just trying to like solve the problem of Russian destabilization, which I think is probably not solvable and certainly is less important than what China is doing right now or and you know a number of other foreign policy issues like COVID. And so you need to have, I think, some kind of expectation setting arrangement with the Kremlin early on in your presidency that like we will not spend too much time on Russia policy if you don't do X, Y, and Z things. And I think Biden communicated that, as far as I can tell, fairly effectively in this meeting. And by elevating it and highlighting it, you're setting the terms early on 
that should allow you to move on and do other things, right? Like, I don't think the amount of press attention that this got meant that the Biden administration is stuck on a path dependence route where they have to do more and more Russia stuff. I actually think it's kind of the opposite. Like, we've, we've cleared the Russia hurdle. Maybe, depending on events, they may get sucked into it, but that really, really, again, depends on events and what Putin does. And I think what they were trying to do was to get this out of the way, create expectations that they wouldn't do things that throw the entirety of the new administration's foreign policy off course, so they can go about their China-focused foreign policy that they've been trying to execute since day one. Well, in, in the spirit of, of, of comedy, but C-O-M-I-T-Y, because I can't make it sound like other than comedy, the, the laughing kind. Like, I do think there were... Comedy. Ben- yeah. In I, the interest of James Comey. Yeah. <laughs> I do, th- I, I will concede that there were, like, some benefits, right? Like, I think it is true that by having the summit, now if Putin does something, you, you know, America can go, well, we tried. Like, we talked to them. We also talked with our allies. Like, we did our best. Now when we respond, we can do so sort of in concert. I think there's that. And I do think what you just said, Zach, is, is accurate, too. Like, we get sort of rushed out of the way, and we don't really have to think about it as much anymore. But... What Biden has really done here, in my mind, is like kind of put his, you know, European fortunes in Putin's hands, which is not really a great thing to do. Because even though Biden downplayed what may happen down the line, he's like, look, three to six months from now, like, we'll see if any of this stuck. But like, that's not a great place to be. Um, And that's not something you wanted to hype up. Like, we'll just see if Putin is going to change his behavior down the line. And if not, like, we'll respond. You elevate that. You make that more of a problem for yourself when you do it in summit form and not like sort of behind the scenes diplomacy or even in like a one-on-one bilat, you know, like on the side of some sort of like at the G20 later this year, like he could have done that, right? You could have waited to talk to Putin until then, probably. I don't know. Like it just now, whatever Putin does, if it is somewhat in defiance of the US, like now Biden's response is going to have to be so forceful and so like in concert with allies, that it will look like there's just no way to come back from that and create that stable and predictable relationship over the next four years. I guess to to sort of end, like, to me, it felt like the U.S. sort of lost control of the situation. There was a moment where Biden went, yeah, Russia's doing all this bad stuff. We do need to get them to stop. And they chose this option. But the end result is, like, now the ball's in Putin's court, and I don't want him playing basketball. Jen, I'm going to give you the last word on this debate before we move on to the next segment. All right, I think Alex actually makes a lot of really good points, um, even, if, even if he's wrong. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, seriously, though, I, I think he is wrong. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> comedic timing, sometimes I've got it. That was very good. Um, so, no, so here, here's the thing for me. There was a really stark moment in the summit that actually had little to do with Biden, but had a lot to do with the fact that it was a summit with the U.S., and specifically with U.S. media present, During his press conference, a U.S. journalist stood up and asked Putin, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but you you keep jailing all of these dissidents, including Alexei Navalny, and what are you so afraid of? And having that moment on camera, and he didn't really have a great answer. He kind of looked really uncomfortable and kind of squirreled out of it. That moment alone, just having a U.S. journalist on camera with the entire world watching, calling out Vladimir Putin being like, what are you so afraid of with all these dissidents? That, to me, alone was worth the entire pageantry of the summit, just to have that moment, because it was just so perfect. So uh, before this escalates again, uh, (laughs) we're going to take a break. When we come back, we may, depending on people's moods, be able to talk a little bit about the uh, European, Western European-focused half of the summit and what actually was accomplished. Plus, uh, a tweet that Alex sent out of something Biden said that caused a little mini political science curve fluffle. We'll be back. 
Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been having a feisty discussion about Joe Biden's Euro trip. We've been focusing mostly on uh, some disagreements about how important the meeting with Vladimir Putin was, but there also were these European meetings, that is to say, meetings with uh, leaders in Europe. Uh, and there were some fairly important things to come out of them. Alex, I'm going to give you a minute to run down the accomplishments. One minute. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I probably won't even need that much. So, uh, the U.S. and G7 partners agreed that they would provide more than two. Remind billion. me what the G7 is, Alex. Well, I'll try to do it under a minute. But yes, the G7 is the seven <laughs> most, um, the wealthiest, biggest economies. They used to be the G8, but they kicked Russia out after Crimea, which is in Ukraine. Uh, or was so that Ukraine. one wasn't just separately. That one wasn't just, of course, European. Japan was there as well. Correct. Yes, but like the, the meeting was in, in the meeting was in Europe. But yes, um, so the G7, Canada, and Japan counted. Yeah, precisely. So more than two billion vaccines sent around the world. Uh, with NATO, they agreed on like steps to leave out of Afghanistan. They talked about defense spending, as they always do. They actually got China as part of its communique to basically say that NATO is now, as a unit, going to focus on the challenges provided by China, which is a, a big change. China was was never really part of it. Again, with the G7, they announced actions on forced labor and supply chains, anti-corruption efforts. On top of that, they also tried to end public support for overseas coal generation by the end of 2021, which is big for the climate change agenda. And Biden also got G7 nations to agree kind of on like making the build back better thing that we're doing at home sort of a global concept, which is in part to combat the China's Belt and Road Initiative, that economic move that they're trying to do in Central Asia and parts of Africa and elsewhere. There was a lot of things that came out of this. Even with the UK, they revamped the new Atlantic Charter. So that's more symbolic than substantive. But basically, Biden's like, hey, I know Boris Johnson, you and I don't get along too well, but our countries do, and we should continue to cooperate. Like, substance-wise in total, it was actually quite successful. And as we were saying earlier, when you're going to do a summit, you want to actually have, like, key deliverables. And they did. All you need to do is go to the White House's website, look at the fact sheets, and, like, 
they actually got a lot of stuff done. Uh, I only have a minute, so I won't go through it. But maybe just to throw like a last jab in, like way more done there than like in the Putin summit. So that was closer to two minutes. But to be fair to Alex, uh, we did interrupt him a few times. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold it against yeah, you, buddy. We'll, we'll allow it. Um, kind of you. So. That, that's a fairly significant slate of accomplishments. I mean, none of it is like all that surprising, uh, right? It's the kind of thing that was assuredly negotiated in advance and then debuted at the summit, not like something they just sat down. They're like, okay, here's the exact number of vaccines that we're going to distribute together. And we figured this out over the course of a short meeting, right? It's <laughs> While not walking along the beach in Cornwall. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the way these things operate, right? The, the summits are like they do a few different things but ultimately in in the case of these deliverables that stuff's planned in advance and the summits are a way of highlighting it drawing attention to it underlining the significance of it whatever it's it's pr basically which sort of brings me to a little minor controversy that alex was at the center of as you can tell he's been feisty in the past few days and so he, he just <laughs> quoted this, this, <laughs> something that uh biden said during these this trip, where Biden said, quote unquote, all foreign policy is the logical extension of personal relationships. So Alex was, I think, the first person to, to report this comment or to tweet it out or something. I don't know. But political scientists went ballistic as a result of the tweet, right? They were all saying this is a ridiculous thing to say, that it is not the case that foreign policy is the logical extension of personal relationships, or that all of it is. And this led to some fighting over, well, are you being unfair to Biden? What does the research actually say? I think it all sort of relates to the point that I was making a second ago, which is, okay, they sat down and sure, that's fine. There were personal relationships at stake when he met with Boris Johnson or he met with Angela Merkel. But ultimately, right, the the agreements they came to were the result of other factors, not personal relationships, strategic interests, values, et cetera, and were planned in advance by lower level staff. Which suggests to me that like Biden couldn't have possibly meant what he literally said, right? There's got to be something at, like that all of foreign policy is this, right, Jen? Like, I know he said things like this in the past, but it, it, the all in there really seems like an exaggeration. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing, and Alex has a really great piece on this, Biden's whole kind of approach to diplomacy and, and politicking is all politics is personal. And, and that's kind of what he says. But maybe I should just throw this to Alex. You know, You have a really good kind of explanation of what that actually means in practice. Yeah. One of the key phrases of, uh, that gives you an insight into Biden is he always says, like, all politics is personal. A lot of people believe that to mean, like, he just wants to get into a room and then, like, only he can fix it, a la Trump style. And, like, that's not actually what he means by it. What he actually means by all politics is personal is he does want to get in the room with someone, but to basically understand what they can and cannot accept. You know, what are the boundaries in which we can make a deal? And once he understands the other person, um, the New York Times basically called it strategic empathy. Like, once you understand the other person and know what they can and can't do, then you can at least, like, make a deal. And that's, I think, what was animating Biden with, like, the Putin thing, for example, right? Like, get into a room with Vlad or Vova, which apparently is the diminutive for Vladimir, and, like, get a sense of what where he's at mentally and, like, what he won't like and can, like, do. And then, then you work within those confines. So all this to say is that for Biden, I think, when he means all foreign policies is essential personal relationships, like, if the two leaders don't get along, if they don't understand each other and don't have a good sense of, like, the system in which their nations are operating, then you're not going to get anything done. That's what I think he's talking about. I think he meant if he had said more diplomacy or negotiating than foreign policy, then I don't think political scientists would have had as big a cow. But 
the, the notion that he said foreign policy itself. Um, they were like, oh, he's reducing this complex systemic stuff to just two guys hashing it out. And like, that's not what he's saying, but he is also kind of is saying that at the same time. Um, so I, so it's, I think it's important that we're teasing it out here. Um, Biden later in his address or his press conference, I should say, said basically that like, he's just like, look, this is not just about self-interest. It's about mutual self-interest. So he's not, again, just making like, uh, this is about personal relationships. It's about what we can do within the interest that both of our countries have. And wherever that Venn diagram meets, that's what we're going to work on um, without compromising values and other interests. So like, I find that to be unobjectionable. Like that seems completely fair to me that there is a personal and systemic dynamic to foreign policy that he may have like, you know, it's a phrase he used often that he kind of went, maybe went too far. I get why political scientists are upset, but also I just kind of felt like political scientists went too far because Biden didn't offer a PhD level explanation of the complexities of foreign policy. But I thought it was distilled overall in the press conference fairly nicely. I also think it depends in some degree how you look at how foreign policy is made and conducted. These are all longstanding arguments uh, for decades in foreign policy. You know, is it individual leaders? Is it bureaucracies that make decisions, et cetera? But I think it's very clear that in many cases, and in particular in the Putin meeting, you know, when you're meeting with certain leaders, like of Vladimir Putin, even like Boris Johnson, you know, Boris represents a party that also in large part shares his views. Putin is very much a personalist dictator. Um, even, you know, he didn't meet with Xi Jinping of China, but I could see in a similar sense, you know, someone who it is the actual figurehead who is kind of the one steering the ship of foreign policy, that it does make sense to have, you know, that one person at face-to-face meeting. But at the same time, you do have lower-level meetings. You have all of the prep work that goes into this. You have all of the aides in the room, et cetera. You had Antony Blinken on the U.S. side meeting with Sergei Lavrov on the Russia side. And they, you know, having their discussions and making sure that their bosses' points of view didn't get, you know, miscommunicated, et cetera. But yeah, you know, in general, I think it makes sense, the, the kind of Biden approach. I, I think it is a bit Trumpian in a way that people don't want to, you know, maybe acknowledge in the sense that it is very much a, like, you know, let's get two folks in the room together and, and hash it out. But I think it's much more strategic in nature. Uh, I also want to add that it's, I mean, it's not controversial, in international relations that personal relationships matter to an extent, right? Like, you know, one of the most famous books in modern IR theory is Ken Waltz's Man, the State, and War, which part of what it's trying to do is analyze the causes of war. And it breaks down these causes at three different levels, or he refers to them as images. And the first one is individuals, right? Like the (laughs) individuals and their views and their own personality ticks help prompt states that they lead to take particular actions. Right. This is not only sort of a classic work of theory, but there's a bunch of uh, contemporary evidence to back this up. So there's a political scientist at Harvard, Josh Kurtzer, um, who, in response to this little controversy about Biden's comments, tweeted out a bunch of, of new research on the way in which personal ties affect policy outcomes and results. So, for example, there's one paper that shows that leaders make judgments about the sincerity of opposing states in in some kind of agreement and diplomacy and threats that they make through their impressions of their actual direct foreign counterparts. So it is the case that to a degree, personal relationships really do matter, 
it makes intuitive sense that the character of the people making decisions and their ideas and their ideologies and their relationships with each other would matter. And that seems to be increasingly backed up by a lot of evidence. Whether Biden exaggerates this is a separate question. I think he probably does exaggerate the significance of this thing. I personally am inclined to believe that most things have structural causes rather than individual ones. That's sort of my my bias based on my own read of the literature here. But um, never mind. I was about to get pretty deep into the IR weeds. But the point the point is, I, I think it's it's not crazy to think that these sorts of things really can matter. And that they can matter in ways that have consequences for policy pretty directly. I mean, I think we can make this point pretty clearly. Like, just take the last two presidents, right? The way Trump interacted with Putin, very different than the way Biden did. And so, like, clearly the personalities of the leaders matter and what you are sort of trying to accomplish or what you're looking to do. That said, like, the state of play between the U.S. and Russia hasn't really changed all that much in the last four or five years. So they're sort of the structural stuff that keeps the U.S. and Russia fighting or, you know, keeping relations bad, like that hasn't changed. But because the U.S. president has, the approach and the way to solve those problems has to a certain extent. So, like, I agree. I think Biden, in in the direct quoting of, like, what he said, which, you know, he said it, so we should hit him on it. Like, I agree that it is not 100% accurate. But I think if you take sort of, like, the entirety of Biden's, like, <laughs> oeuvre, in a sense, and, like, what he has been saying and like, you know, pushing for many years are advocating, which is you you can't go anywhere until the two leaders have reached some sort of understanding. And then you work from there. Like, it's just, you need to have a sort of a bit of both in order to to make any progress whatsoever. I'm going to take it in a totally different direction um, away from this, this tweet controversy, but I think that was really interesting. Um, to me, like, the biggest thing of the Euro trip outside of the Putin stuff that we talked about when Biden was in, you know, Cornwall meeting with the G7 leaders, I was really struck by all the images that were coming out of him, you know, walking side by side with Boris on the beach in Cornwall and him meeting with all these different leaders and smiling and laughing and, you know, having these one-on-one meetings and everyone just kind of looked like the gang's back together. Like even with Boris, Boris and Biden are not on the same kind of side politically. They probably don't seem to maybe get along that much, you know, personally and have a lot in common, but they were still really chummy. They were still, you know, seemed like they were getting along, et cetera. And it really, to me, was a stark contrast with that viral photo from the G7 summit in 2018 in Canada when Trump went and met with all the other G7 leaders. And if you remember, that photo became this like really viral meme with Trump sitting at a table, sitting down uh, with his arms crossed, looking very, you know, kind of obstinate. And all the G7 leaders around him, kind of like leaning towards him, specifically Angela Merkel, is like leaning forward with both hands on the table, like addressing him. You have Abe Shinzo, then Prime Minister of Japan, with his arms crossed, looking incredibly frustrated. You had all these other leaders, like Macron, making this sort of incredulous face. And they're all like crowded around, like looking at Trump. And he's kind of looking off into the, to the distance, like, nope, don't care. And it was this very much like Trump versus the world, Trump versus Europe. And having that contrast, again, summits matter, pageantry matters when it comes to diplomacy. And that image is very different from what we saw now of like the the rah-rah, the gang's all here. And so I think to me, if there's like one really big takeaway, it's that despite the very real differences between many European countries in the U.S. in terms of issues about trade, in terms of how much they want to actually take on China, 
how much they actually want to take on Russia, et cetera. I think the the visual kind of, you know, the imagery of what came out of the summit did what Biden wanted, you know, what he set out to accomplish was, look, the Western democracies, not just Western, I mean, Japan was there too. You know, democracies are back together. We're united. We're all getting along. We're all on the same page and we're here and we're ready to challenge China and to some degree Russia. And I think if that was the main goal, I think Biden definitely accomplished it. Yeah. I, I want to say one more thing on that point before we close, which is one of the big problems when you talk to experts on the U.S.-NATO relationship during uh, the Trump administration was an, it was an issue of predictability, that it's not just what Trump is going to do in the next few days, whether he sends a crazy tweet or something like that. It's that all of these countries, especially in Europe, have premised their foreign policies around the idea of having a defensive shield from the United States and the idea that they can count on the U.S. to help them and be a reliable partner for not just like the next four years, but in perpetuity down the line. And so the concern is that, you know, if, if Trump is the leader, the guy in the U.S., what's to prevent Americans from electing leaders like him again, right? Can we really count on the United States as a durable partner in the way that we thought we could from the European perspective prior to the Trump administration? And so there was an, and I wrote something about this at the time, that there's like a real existential challenge to the foundations of the American-led security architecture of which NATO, the alliances with Japan and South Korea are really the most important parts. Uh, that was that were created by Trump's antics and his attempt to like extort American allies for protection money. Uh, so a lot of Biden's job here wasn't just to get specific concrete deliverables. It was to give this sense that Trump was a blip and an aberration and that politics like that won't recur and that this is where the U.S. is going to be, not just now, but for the foreseeable future sort of back in the groove that it was in beforehand, in the, we are your friend, your stable partner, we'll always be there to support you, et cetera. Uh, whether or not he did that successfully, I think is it's not clear yet, but that was the undercurrent behind all of this stuff, that every specific agreement was building towards restoring the sense of trust. You know, it's a little bit like uh, a relationship, uh, you know, an intimate relationship where one of the partners cheated, right? And they're trying to get back together. But you need to be able to restore the ability to trust that partner, that you can count on them, that they won't do it again, and so on. And so Biden is you know, acting on behalf of America, saying, no, seriously, honey, we're really faithful. And the Europeans are like, really? And that, that was the undercurrent of this meeting. Whether or not, again, it succeeded, you can't, you can't fix these kind of trust issues with one grand gesture, one summit, or you know, buying a vacation home, or whatever it is that rich people do to deal with the fact that they did something awful. A fancy ring, I guess. I don't know. Go to the beach in Cornwall. <laughs> sure, sure. That could work. Um, but that, that's, what, that's what he was trying to do. And that's it's a start of a long process of restoring that sense of predictability and trust. Uh, so we're going to leave you there, listeners. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all her hard work. I want to thank all of you for continuing to send your questions to the Worldly email account. We will uh, try to answer them when we can. But... It may not be as soon as we'd like because we have some some unfortunate news for you, which is that Alex is, is leaving Vox for an exciting new opportunity, and uh, he will talk about this. Uh, it'll be announced formally later on, but next week is going to be our last episode with the three of us, the last time I get to say, as always, at the beginning of the show. So 
we're going to do some kind of special thing for it. I don't can't tell you what yet. That may or may not be because I don't know. But I promise we will celebrate Alex in style because as much as we like roasting him on the show, Alex is a beloved worldly contributor who's done a great, great job on the podcast and helped make us what we are. So I'll say more nice, heartfelt things next week. But if you want to keep sending some email thank yous to Alex, I'm sure he'd appreciate that too, as long as he has access to his Vox Media email. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I, I do for the next week or so. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. We, so stay tuned. We will have a send off slash roast of Alex next week. Zach and I, of course, will still be unworldly. So don't worry. Worldly's not going anywhere. Alex is just abandoning the ship. But just for one week, it'll be Wardly. Nope. <laughs> Ward Wardly. No, it won't. <laughs> yes, it will. Actually, for one maybe, week. maybe, maybe it will. I might do that in the <laughs> intro. Um, and of course, you know, rate, subscribe, review, podcast on all your podcast apps. You know the drill at this point. Talk to you guys next week to celebrate Alex. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I like that you just called Worldly Podcast. It's good. It counts. As always, rate and review podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com Flagship. This is a paid advertisement.